The Boundless Pursuit Podcast is proudly sponsored by Built Wild DNA. Fuel your day on the water in a constructive and healthy way. Energy and fitness supplements designed with the outdoorsman in mind. Get your physicality in line with your mentality and maximize your time on the water. Use promo code BOUNDLESSPURSUIT for 10% off of your next order at BuiltWildDNA.com. Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. People who know this podcast and know me as an angler know that I love bowfin. And I have gone to bat for this species for years, citing their undeniable sporting qualities as a catch and release species. But I have not been able to defend their value as a table worthy target. I just don't know that side of the fish. And frankly, I don't eat a lot of fish. But Today's guest does. Justin Peden of Mississippi runs the Spirit of the Outdoors YouTube channel, where he's amassed nearly 15,000 followers. But he's not on there acting gimmicky or silly or just blatantly trying to get more followers. This is just a guy that's deeply embedded in the culture of the Deep South. And his content leans very heavily into sustenance harvest of fish, game, and plants. And so a lot of what he's filming and promoting is the catching and the eating of what he catches and harvests and just craftsmanship in general and using every part of what you harvest. And he's doing very educational content about things like the medicinal purposes of various plants, many of which you can find in your own backyard. I stumbled across Justin's account when he was demonstrating that you not only can, but you should be catching and cooking bowfin or grinnell as they're called in his neck of the woods. And we cracked this code very early on in this episode. But Justin also just discusses his awesome lifestyle and the ability to be able to provide for yourself as a minimalist and putting positivity into every message that you put out there. And he's a very deeply spiritual guy, often delivering scriptural messages out in the woods and daily devotionals. And I think that that speaks to his character and his deep passion for the outdoors. This is wholesome and pure content that the world really needs more of from one of the most authentic and inadvertently entertaining people out there. This is Justin Peden of the Spirit of the Outdoors YouTube channel and Peden's Spirit of the Outdoors Instagram page. Okay, yeah, I had to scroll up and hit got it. Okay, we're good now. I got gotcha. you. Well, well, Justin, Justin Peden, right? I want to make sure I'm getting your name right. Do, That's I, right. I got to show at least that much respect. But, um, man, I appreciate getting you on here, and, and I will preface this conversation by anybody listening. Justin is a bona fide and legitimate country boy who appears to be out in, like, nice, 
rural southern setting. <laughs> uh, on a we're really... out in east central Mississippi. Yeah, and so... it's nice and warm, and and I'm probably. 12 to 15 miles from the closest store. So yes. it's rural. Well, if if we can uh if we can maintain connection here and and keep clear audio and video, then we'll be happy. But I'll just give everybody listening a fair warning now. But uh man, I, I, I'm really pumped to get you on here because I think the first time that I saw, and I, I wanted to talk to you about this before we started recording because I was so excited. But like the first time that I ever saw you was on YouTube. You got this YouTube channel that to me, as somebody that's like really interested in that like rural South, like authentic rural Southern scene, your channel is like gold to me. Um, And I stumbled across a video of yours catching Grinnell. You're in Grinnell country. Yeah. But uh, that species of fish, Bowfin, is very near and dear to my heart. So like anytime... I find somebody else that's that's eaten up with Bowfin or with Grinnell. Um, I, I automatically want to know more about them. But uh, you do something that's really, really interesting to me with Grinnell that I've never covered on this podcast, and I really don't know if I've ever covered at all, and that's that you're actually harvesting some of them to eat, right? Oh, yeah. I never catch one that I don't eat it. That is my whole <laughs> reason that I love them so much. And that is interesting because most people that I encounter automatically go off on this tangent about this trash fish uh-huh. that are not fit to eat. And I I didn't realize that everywhere else nobody eat them because all of the old timers around here that I grew up around all eat them. We went on Grinnell fishing trips. like, And then <laughs> as a kid, we went down there with some giant shiners and a cane pole with like 30-pound test line. and you when the cork disappeared, you let it go for a little bit, and then you just set the hook. And, if, and then, when I was a kid, you just turn around and put the pole over your shoulder and walk up the bank and just drag him out. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's it's funny because like I get in the same type of mm, arguments or debates with old timers, and I feel like it's mostly an old timer thing because you're seeing more people embracing Bowfin or Grinnell than ever before now, which is nice to see. But I always came at it from the angle of like, you know, I would defend their sporting qualities, like how hard they fight, how fun they are to catch on rod and reel. But I, I didn't know how to defend the table fare because I've never eaten one. I don't know the recipes. It's always been like the grand mystery. Okay, but how do you eat them? So I finally have somebody who's cracked the code and can give an actual real definitive answer. Granted, this is like everybody probably has like their recipes, but there is a lot yeah. of idea out there that you cannot eat a grinnell. That it's like the number, like it is just one of those fish. It can't be done. So like I figured, I was like, you know what? I want to, I want to like establish that early in the conversation. How do you prepare a bowfin? They say it can't be done. So, like, for you, when the you biggest, go out to catch these things, what, like, how do you prepare one? The biggest trick to bowfin is keep the fish alive. If that fish is thrown into a cooler of ice, by the time you, if you left right then, and by the time you got home, the meat would be like a mush, and it's mm. not good to eat. And that's the thing that, that helped me when I really started doing a lot of grunt fishing, both end fishing, is 
I had a John boat that had a live well in it. And I just something that my dad bought when I was a kid. And it just so happened to have a live well. So we never threw fish in a cooler of ice. We always threw everything in a live well. So when we got home, the griddle would still be mo- alive and flopping in there because they can live in a mud hole. They breathe there. Yeah. And if you keep some somewhat fresh water, they they good to go. And then we would, a lot of times now as a kid, I didn't have the remorse, I guess, that I have now. And I we would just go to filleting them flopping. Now I try to dispatch a fish because, before I go to filleting it. But the mm-hmm. key is keeping it alive because something about that meat is very delicate. And it starts breaking down really fast. And putting water on it also speeds up this process. Now, there is a man in my community that he washes all of his grunnel. He's like some of the people that come in on my videos. I don't wash them. I take a paper towel and wipe it down, wipe the blood out of it, and then I cut it up and fry the filet in like nuggets. And that's my preferred way of doing it. If you're ready to drop it in grease immediately and go to deep frying it, you can rinse it off. It is not like water is going to absolutely ruin it. But when you put that water on there, you greatly speed up that process of it breaking down. And and I have had one, like if, if I was fishing for a long time and I crawled a, a, one of these both ends as soon as I got there and I fished for like a half a day and I got home and he was dead. When I'd go to fillet it, the electric fillet knife, it would gum the knife up because the meat would just start coming apart. And at that oh, point, wow. you just throw it away and cut your losses. <laughs> Now, is it like like the meat itself? I've heard some people say that it's extreme. You know, there's myths. I, I don't know of any other fish that has more myths behind it than a grinnel, than a bowfin. Like there's yeah. more old wives' tales about that species than like any other. But like I've heard that they're extremely bony. And then I've also heard that there's like no bones. But And then I heard about the mushy, like almost cotton-like texture of it. Mm-hmm. Is it is it a bony meat? The one the one that is really bony is the chain pickerel, which is a mm-hmm. jack, we call it here. And yep. it's really close to a pike. Um, yep. But now we've always called them jack. I had to actually Google it here not long ago to realize it was a chain pickerel because somebody said, oh, it's a walleye. I mean, it's, it's not a walleye. <laughs> it's a chain pickerel. Yeah. But they have little Y bones that come up into the meat. And they are extremely bony. And my grandpa loved them and eat them. And I just recently, last week, in the video that came out this week, caught one of the biggest ones I've ever caught. It was probably 18 to 20 inches long. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a couple of pounds, which the record here is four pounds and six ounces, I think. Yeah. Or maybe six pounds, four ounces, something like that. But Anyway, the the bowfin, it just has a lot like a catfish. It's got one row of bones down the center of it and then the rib bones. So what I do is start behind the gills with electric fillet knife, and I fillet that out, flip it over and fillet it out of the skin, and I lay it on my cutting board, take a knife, and I cut that section of ribs out and, and lay it to the side, and then there's no bone whatsoever in the meat. And it's a firm meat at that point. It is not mushy or soft or whatever else. So I split it right down the middle lengthways of that fillet and then cross cut it all the way down into nuggets. And then I go straight into cornmeal and and then we deep fry it. Um, and it's it's uh, the meat definitely has a different texture. Yeah. It is not soft like most fish you know most fish when you cook it you can grab it and mash it and it kind of flakes into 
pieces. This will stay together like a meat. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Because that's what I was wondering. Like, can you relate it? Like, is there anything you can compare it to, even if it's not even a fish? Probably the closest fish that I have eaten that I would compare it to, and this is going to be really strange, is probably mahi-mahi. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> and that's the grill. Yeah. That is grill because, <laughs> see, I have taken these fillets, put them on my Blackstone griddle, and and cooked it like baked fish. I have mm. grilled it. Um, a lot of people say it has to be cooked a certain way, and I find that to be not true as well. I think you can cook it any way you want to as long as you cook it immediately. And another okay. thing is if you clean this all immediately and you go put it in the refrigerator and I'm going to cook it tonight or tomorrow morning, you can throw it away. It'll it'll drip through your fingers when you scoop it up. Oh, that's so interesting. So I guess the key, like the key step, is keeping them alive up until the point of preparing them. That's right. Which yeah. would really, you would think yeah. that'd really be almost best practice for any kind of fish to keep it as fresh as possible. But um, how yeah. interesting that you would relate it to like, you know, what's considered a delicacy among fish, like a mahi. Um, it's you know a mahi mahi when you order it grilled, and we go down to Biloxi to deliver pottery, and I we go to a little restaurant called Harbor View. And uh, it's a really good restaurant there, and um, I think it's closer to Long Beach, probably. But um, I ordered mahi-mahi the other weekend when we were down there. And it's just a solid, it's more like a solid piece of meat than it is like fish. Because fish is typically soft, but this is more firm, like when it's cooked right. And that's strange because most people that cook both in talk about how cottony it is and how mushy it gets. and and that's all strictly because they let it die or mishandled it before they cooked it. Now, so that's the thing is I think people just don't know how to do it. Like they didn't have the source of information. So then that leads me to wonder, how did you figure out how to do it? Was this like taught to you? Was there like a like you had to learn like by trial and error? Did you read about it? Like how did you figure out how to crack that code? You know, I, I think I could contribute we, we've always cooked them and eat them here, but, you know, I really didn't have anybody show me how to cook them. I think the key step was is, is me having a boat with a live well in it that I just typically kept them alive when we got home. Yeah. And, I, you know, I kind of, I guess, would say stumbled upon it. But now most people around here eat them. So, yes, that knowledge is kind of passed down and, and passed around to people. Because like most things that are controversial, you have people that are either strongly for it or strongly against it. There's no in the middle. <laughs> and that's like people here, they either they love both in or they hate them. There's no, well, I tried or, you know, very few times do you run across somebody that's like, well, I tried, you know, I've never tried it. It's either it's trash and we kill them and throw them yeah. out. So. <laughs> right. Now, like, I guess on the spectrum of freshwater fish, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of times the saltwater fish just seem to taste better. But, like, you know, in your local waters, what do you have? Like channel catfish, crappie, bass, yeah. bluegill, like your typical fish. Where where does a yeah. bowfin stack up at table fare-wise against your more recognized or more accepted species of fish? Palate, Number like, one palatable. for me. Number so this, one. And this is no bull crap, right? This is no, no. Like, uh-huh. dead serious. 
You you watch my last video. I caught bass after bass after bass, and I steadily throwing them back in the water. And I, I love did. bass I fishing. It, yep. <laughs> I grew up bass fishing from from the time I was a little kid. I dug around in the shed and found my dad's old ambassador reel. It was in a toolbox. I found mm-hmm. an old rod that he had and put it together. I had to oil it up and get it working. And and I started fishing cattle ponds with a friend of mine. And we was fishing with plastic worms and just catching bass and throwing them back just for the enjoyment. And uh, a lot of people, my my grandpa, he loved to fish, and we fished with an old bait back then that was called a purple snagless salad. And I think they still make them. There's a company that still makes those, and I think the purple is the hardest color to get with the gold spinners. Yeah. But that's what he <laughs> fished with, and they caught the bow fin on them. And I got to fishing in a swamp farm and catching them. And the next fortunate thing, is the head of the Pearl River is about a mile behind my house. Mm. So we've always been able to take a four-wheeler or walk or whatever and just go back to the swamp and fish whatever's in that swamp. And it's mostly catfish, brim, crappie, um, bowfin, um, jack, and I'm sure I'm skipping something, but those are the more common. We have buffalo here, which we call them... um, uh, not them went blank. They gasprogoes, what they call them here. Okay, I've heard that. So yeah. I, <laughs> and yeah. and the main thing that everybody eats here is is brim, crappie, and catfish. And then you've got a whole bunch of people that they grill fish. And the people that grill fish will all tell you they'd rather go grill fishing than anything. And I think a lot of it has to do with like bass. I eat bass in the early part of the year when the water is cool. Mm-hmm. But as the water warms up, there's several of these fish that the taste changes in this muddy water. And I don't know if that's the case in across the United States with all waters. But like mudcat is one that's very distinct here that early in the spring, it's a really good fish. As the water starts getting up around 80 degrees to 90 degrees, it is not good to eat at all. I mean, oh, it drastically changes. Yeah. And I find bass to be that way a little. Not as bad, but a little. But now if you fillet it completely out of the skin, you do away with a lot of that. So w- with that being said, when I go right now fishing, I prefer the boat fin. That's my number one fish. I, I don't even... I catfish early in the year because they're running and I can limb line and all that. And the water's yeah. up and the water fluctuates a lot in this swamp. So when it starts getting down, you migrate to these holes that are in bends where the water, and that's where your fish are going to hold up for the most part. Yeah. And especially right now, the water's really low again. And uh, I went down there to one of the holes that I know where that's got some deeper spots in it and it's loaded with both ends. Yeah. And well, um, I guess it won't like a- be just. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess that's a nice like advantage to have. Like you can sort of have that bounty all to yourself for the most part. You know, that's a plentiful fish. It's easy to throw into a bucket even with no aerator. I mean, it's a pretty hardy species that you yeah. can at least kind of keep alive fairly easily. You're not like competing with everybody in town over who can like you know who's eating them all up. So I, maybe it's a good thing that not a people yeah. have, have realized that secret. Um, well, here there's quite a few that eat them. Yeah, it's... yeah. It it is a weird thing. Like I remember, like I I alluded to earlier when you know before we started recording, I first learned of what a bowfin was here in the here in the term grinnell. Uh, you know, I've I've grown up all over the southeast, 
And I first came across them when I was a kid in, in Southwest Arkansas. It was the same thing, Grinnell, like right there down near Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, you know, bottom of the corner of the state. And, uh, and it was sort of the same thing. It was very like night and day. There was like no middle zone. It was either you had the people that absolutely hated them and despised them and wanted nothing to do with them. And then you had the people that absolutely loved them and always kind of like wonder where the disconnect is. But it's like, um, you know, I, I know that for me, when I was still trying to figure out, do I like these fish or not? There was so much like negative coming in, like, oh, you don't want nothing to do with that. Those things are trash. Those things are nasty. Like, what is, like, I don't know, man. Like, where do you think the perception of the fish comes from? I don't even want to say the south. It's, like, across the country, but it's more of a southern species of fish. But, like, where did bowfin go wrong? Like, where, where did Because it is a predator fish, and the people that are diehard crappie and bowfin fishermen, or crappie and uh, bluegill fishermen, this is eating up all of their fish. This yeah. this fish is coming in and just running their probably the crappie fishermen, I would say, would be the main culprits because there's an abundance of bluegill. There's bluegill in every mud hole around here. Crappie, you gotta know which hole to go to to find crappie. Yeah. And they're not just like a brim. You can drift the river and throw in ever behind every tree and you can get bites from brim. Crappie, not so. You got to know where to go and which stump to fish around, which hole to go to to catch them at which time of the year. So when somebody finds a hole that they like that has crappie in there, the two things that they're going to hate, and that's gar and bowfin, yeah. <laughs> because all they just run in my fishing hole, that, and an otter. Throw the otter in there. Mm. They hate him too. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the bowfin kind of has the disadvantage to a point of being like a swamp dweller. And I mean, if you go far enough back into the swamp, like the deeper you go, the less oxygenated the water is, especially when the water gets low. And uh, it's kind of like, it becomes more so that nothing else can live in some of these environments, but a bowfin. It's like yeah. the people show up at these like oxygen deprived little bodies of water and can't find nothing but a bowfin and a gar living. Like, you know, the air breathing fish are the only ones living. And, you know, it's like your mind goes straight to thinking, oh, oh, they ate everything. But uh, ironically, I would see the same yeah. thing. We'd have the we'd have the, you know, the local spillway that I fished. You'd have like the five gallon bucket crew, you know, everybody lined up on the bank, bucket loaded with crappie and bluegill, not a single fish thrown back. Everything they catch is just keep, 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 keep. So yeah. the same people that are like, oh. These mudfish or these grin are eating up all the crappie, and then they sling up a big old stringer full of fish and take it home. I'm like, you ever wonder if maybe you're yeah. taking too much? Like, <laughs> maybe you're maybe you're. And the see, problem, most people but... that's catching any of these fish, like even the guys that are bow fishing gar, and mm -hmm. I, that's one of the problems that I have. Like me, when I catch two grinnel, that's about all I can eat. Now, my whole family eats them. So when I catch, if I catch three or four, I can fry a dish pan full and my parents will come. My daughter's there, eat my wife eats them. Anybody that I call is going to come eat grunt. Uh, But if it's just me, two fish I can eat by myself. Yeah. If I'm going to fry them all and then I'll eat them this meal and then I'll eat leftovers in the morning or later tonight or whatever. Um, and then if I catch another one, I'll put them back. And a lot of the fishermen, they just, I don't know if it's because they don't get to go fishing enough 
or what. So when they start catching something, they can't release it. They have to put everything in a bucket. <laughs> and I, yeah. you know, and that's one of the good things we've learned from the bass fishermen is the catch and release. And, and I, you know, they're one of, I would say the first people that started that. And, and I think now crappie would be one of the next things that, that needs to be watched, especially with live scope. Um, and I'm not against live scope. That's one of the other controversial things that you're either for or against. Yeah. And that's I, I, I personally am not. <laughs> I'm not really a live scope guy. I don't want it. It's not because I think with a guy that has, it's going to sing out the hole. Uh, it's just a tool that allows you. My reason is I'm not there to stare at a screen. I do that at home filming YouTube videos or <laughs> <Yeah>. whatever else. <laughs> so I, I don't want to spend my fishing time staring at this little screen like I'm playing a video game. If that's what you like, then that's you. You do what you want to do. But I think one of the things that's given live scope probably a bad name is a lot of your average people that are buying it are buying it to catch more fish because they're struggling to find fish anyway. Yeah. And there's some people that it is allowing them to take more fish home. And and it's not because of live scope, it's because something wrong with them to begin with. And that, you know, I think that conversation hasn't been had about live scope, you know. It's not that live scope's bad. It's some of the people that bought it for that purpose. And yeah. everybody didn't buy it for that purpose. So, yeah, you know, I, I feel like, I honestly feel like live scope would make, I've never used it. I would be, I would be interested in trying it, but I know how I get. Um, I think if I saw like on a screen, a little blip on the bottom, like I would become so infatuated with trying to catch that yeah. one fish that the amount of time that yeah. I took to work that one fish, if I had just been covering water, I'd have probably caught 10 times as many fish. So it's like, you know, I, I could I see that working. Like I would be I, that way. Yeah, I, I could see that working against you. It's almost like a video game. And it's like you get like, for me, I could tell like, man, I would just be so infatuated with like seeing my lure on the screen and trying to get like this blip to eat that blip that if yeah. I had just been fishing the whole time, I'd have caught more fish. Oh, it's and, kind of, and the kind thing of that I am, and part of what my channel is about, is about the experience. Yes. And I'm not there to see how many fish I can catch. I'm there because I want to eat fish, and I don't need but a few to eat. But I'm there to have a good time. And a good time to me is not stressing, trying to figure these electronics out and spend mm -hmm. a fortune to do. The least amount of money I can spend to go and come home with what I want makes me happier and if i can repurpose and reuse old stuff i'm even happier about it yeah. and i i guess it's my way of going back to the the older ways of life mm -hmm. and it's more about the spirit of the, those ways than it is the the actual technology yeah like well, that, black I, that, powder and primitive weapon and I, it's not about the thing it's about the attitude that that pre presents yes and i want to get into all that stuff because i totally agree it's like there is enough YouTube channels out there as it is that are trying to sell you a product that are trying to make it just be, it's just purely just entertainment. Like try to trying to get a viral moment, even if it means faking yeah. it, like trying too hard. And then when I saw yours and it was all about like homesteading and like building things, repurposing things, the knife building, I want to get into all of that stuff. Cause that's like deeply fascinating to me. And it's like a skill set That's it's like, it's being lost, which is sort of tragic. You know, it's like there's yeah. people who 
they're doomed if they lose everything. If you dropped them in the middle of the woods, they wouldn't make it 24 hours. So like, I watch your stuff. I'm like, this is really, really cool. And I want to get there in a little bit, but I don't want to get off the fishing quite yet. You know, as I start on the fishing. All and, right. um, but you had mentioned earlier, you know, I can tell that you are a very savvy guy when it comes to like harvesting food, making food. Um, you defied the odds with making a, a grill taste good. So then it makes me wonder, like, you know, let's say in a similar category is like a gar. They sort of they sort of exist in that same realm. It's like, you know, you have these levels of fish in the public's eye, not in my eye. And the gar is like right there with a grinnel, with a bowfin. Have you tried eating those? Like, what's your experience with trying to cook up a gar? Have I, I have that? not. And I'll be honest, I struggle to catch a gar. I have people that, that say, man, they give me fits. I can't fish for them. Yeah. <laughs> I have went a couple of times this year because I had the purpose that I wanted to try gar. I had watched some videos on how to clean it. I mean, they're difficult to clean. So I, I look, you know, you take mm -hmm. it and either cut it with 10 snips down it or either start cutting it to back with a hatchet or a machete and cut it up and, and kind of hold the meat up out of it. And I've watched people get two nice fillets really out of the top yeah. of it. And I'm like, I want to try it. And I've struggled to catch one. And I have a, there's a duck pond back here that is, has some crappie in it and the crappie are really hard to catch. Like you can only catch them certain times of the year because, there's so much brush out in it, you can't find them. So, And then it's got a lot of vegetation in it. So right now, you can't even drag a bait around in most of it because there's so many lily pads and weeds of different sorts. But there's a couple of places that I see a lot of gar, and I have really, really tried. And I can't, I've struggled to catch them. I've tried the little rope lure, the frayed rope and line, mm -hmm. and they just won't go after it. So, I, you know, I haven't caught very many of them. I need to go boat fishing, I reckon. Yeah, well, what difference does it make if you're going to eat the fish at the end of it? It's like gig them, spear them. You know, it's, I admire, yeah. you know, a lot of a lot of times the guys that I'm in the same circles with who love bowfin, who love gar, like are enemies with the bow fishermen. I'm like, well, you know, you can't be, you can't hate the action of bow, like, like bow fishing in and of itself is just like a primitive way of harvesting food. Now, what people do with the fish after, maybe we could, sit and debate on but i mean if you're harvesting food who, who yeah. cares but um yeah I've, I've we, heard nothing we but... all agreed that we dislike the greedy people yeah. and they just they want to take way more than they need just because and most of them just want to brag about how many they caught. that's like here these yeah. people that leave and go on these fishing trips and come back and say we caught 300 brim at so and so and i'm like and what did you, what'd you do with them? Well, we gave some of them to so-and-so, and some of them to the, They rode around trying to find people to give them to because they didn't want to clean them. Well, why did yeah. they do that? Why didn't they <laughs> yeah. just catch them and throw them back in the water? You know, I, yeah. that's, I struggle with that, really. That's a tough one because, you know, they can take the moral high ground of saying, I'm being charitable and feeding the neighbors. But it's like, well, yeah. you know, eh, was that really was that really like what you went out there to do? Or, you know, but but you can't be the guy to question it because... It's like then you're some yeah. jerk that's oh, well, so the bow well, fishermen are that way too. They they just shooting them and then most of them are just throwing them in the weeds of the bushes. And that's so that's I, sort of know, like the unspoken reality or truth that I think we all know. At least I I never want to hate on that the act of bow fishing, like it as a sport, but I, I can just say what a lot of people say is like anecdotally, like my experience, 
what I have observed is like the overwhelming amount of the time I've seen those guys, they were shooting, shoot and release, you know, shaking them off at the boat, throwing them in the boat yeah. ramp. And I don't know, that's, that's unfortunate, but um, you know, the gar wasn't like an interesting one because I've never eaten gar. I've never, I've never really eaten many fish that I've caught, but I've heard a lot of good things about a gar. So I was kind of experience, uh, interested in what your experience with it might have been. I, I've I have not eaten them. I I do want to, and my plan is to eat them because if I can figure out a good way to catch them, and I think probably one of the things is I need to go to a small cut bait and a smaller hook, yeah, and just, just gut hook shallow them. fish them, and and try that. Um, because I'm when I'm there fishing cut bait, I'm both in fishing, so I'm using a big hook and a big piece of bait and. And they come up and and we'll need those gars most of what we have here. We don't really have alligator gar with a big wide mouth. Yeah. So they're not really getting all that in their mouth and you're missing them. The only few that I have caught, I have caught on limb lines where they got tangled up in the line itself. Yeah. And that's yeah. the way I have caught what few gar I have caught. Yeah. That's that's an interesting one. I, I, I always did better with long nose gar, needle nose gar under a float not so much on the bottom I mean, they'll pick it up off the bottom too but uh yeah we'd, we'd always just let him carry it forever because that's what they they grab the damn or dang they grab the bait <laughs> and they carry it they carry it all over the place before they eat it so sometimes you just have to like you know it's annoying then you just gotta see I've, I've have you had that experience with both fan doing that when a you little fish bit. Them. I, I never, I've always allowed Bowfin to run with the bait at least a little bit. It's just, you know, you know how they are just by nature. They're usually yeah. near some limbs. They're near some sticks. They're near some weeds. So a lot of time you just, you can't let them run or they get into that stuff. But um, yeah, I've never really seen, I've never really had Bowfin to like immediately gobble it up and eat it. They'll kind of grab it and bite at it, move it around in their mouth. My experience with them, and I've seen a video, I don't remember where I've seen it at, but there was a video of underwater footage of a bowfin eating a bait, and he grabs it in his mouth and some off with it, and it's like crossways of his mouth, and then somewhere in the process of him swimming off, he opened up and inhaled it. Yeah. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense to me, yep. I, because of how many I have let them run a little bit and snatch the bait, like you said, because they're headed toward limbs or they're doing this or that and or get excited and set the hook. And I come back with just a head and the tail's missing. I'm like, yeah. well, you know, <laughs> he never pulled the hook out of the bait. Yeah. So, I've, I've gotten to a point now after all these years fishing for them, it's just like like some amount of failure is just going to be part of the equation. It's just it's one of those species yeah. that you're going to miss on a lot. And And even if you do get a hook in them, they're going to find a way to get it out of them. Like, cause they go so crazy when they're fighting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, man, I, I don't know. It's when I saw it and you've caught some big ones too. Like, give me an idea. Like some of the, I think, golly, I wish I, I'm going to have to pull it up on the screen or something. The first video that I saw of you, it was like a really big one. I was like, Oh man. So like you're my biggest one. I caught in a canoe. I, I was fishing. Actually I was crappie fishing. And I had just thrown a cut bait out on one of the extra poles and laid it down in the canoe. And when he started running with it, I let him run and I set the hook. And he weighed a little over nine pounds. And that is yeah. by far my biggest bowfin. I've, and now there is recorded some people around here claim that 11 pounds is in. I caught 
shocking. And I said this year I was going to see how big a one I could catch, and I, I've I've yet to break the uh, six or seven pounds, something yeah. like that, as big as I've gotten. So I, I'm stuck there. A nine pounds is a formidable fish, like for both in the standards. I mean, it's it's such a violent species of fish. But, he literally uh, literally pulled a canoe. I held yeah. <laughs> on to him in a canoe, and he, he we went in circles. Him pulling a canoe, so yeah, that's a big fish. <laughs> yeah, I noticed on a lot of your videos. I mean, some bait fishing, and then some also. It looks like you're you're favoring a lot of crawfish patterns. I guess they're probably eating predominantly crawfish in that area. Yeah, this swamp has a lot of crawfish, and uh, I like green lizards for bass fishing, so I fish with that a lot down there, too, and they hit those, um, but the the crawfish-colored brush hogs and crawfish are the by far the best baits, and uh, that's what I, I like, and I like plastic baits. I mean, I, I'm typically going to fish with, with plastic baits and... Uh, big game trilene line. Mm-hmm. I like gumakatsu hooks, and those are just my go-tos. Yep. And I've, I guess, because I've had good luck with it, and that's. But I have tried some other hooks. Uh, I tried, and I don't remember now what brand it is. And I don't like to bash products because sometimes things just fail. Everything's gonna fail at some time. Yeah. But they kept breaking, and I think the hooks were maybe tempered too much. They had no flex. So if you mm. bend them very much, they just the break in half. And they were a heavy hook. So I got away from them. <laughs> and they were one of the more, you know, you'd think was a well known brand. I've had really good luck with Gamakatsu hooks. Yeah. So I, I tend to look for them. Right. Now, we've talked about, I mean, you're obviously at least open-minded enough to try types of fish, even if people say it's not worth it. And, you know, uh, you, you seem like a guy that's probably crafty enough to figure out ways to eat things that maybe people, I don't know, have superstitions about. Is there a fish for you, though? Like, I ain't touching that one. Like, is there a fish that you won't eat? Is there anything that's just like, mm. ooh, even I don't want nothing no, to do with that? I've... I've... <laughs> Like the carp here, we these times of the year that the in this swamp they when the uh, the Corps of Engineers on it, and the state took it over as a wildlife management area. So they go in and build roads all up through the swamp that never was there, other than a log road up through the middle of it when it was logged back in the mid eighties. So where they crossed the creek, they built low water crossings. They call it. So basically, they go in and they pile this big rip rap in the the river and dig it down to where the water could run over it, and then they put smaller slag on top of it so you can drive ATVs and whatever oh, okay. through there. Well, the water runs over the top of it, and there's times of the year that these carp, we call them suckers here, you know, the mouse right down on the bottom, yep. and they will just stack up at night in that little water crossing when the water is like eight inches to a foot deep, and you can literally go up there with a spear and just gig them all you wanted to. We were riding one night four-wheelers or ATVs and happened up on it. At that time, I didn't even know what they were. I was young yeah. then. <laughs> so we we hand-grabbed some of them, got one or two out and brought them home and was asking people, like, what is this? And they were, that's a sucker. And it's a carp. And that's one yeah. that I have never eaten. But to say that I wouldn't eat it, I, it it looks a lot like a redfish down in the coast to me. Right, I mean, yeah. they look a lot alike, just the yeah. color. So, I, you know, I, 
if I was hungry, I'd eat it. But I mean, that's like possum. There's a lot of people around here that eat possum in the depression and you hear all about how to cook possum. Mm -hmm. And a possum is going to be one of the last things I would eat. I would probably eat a skunk before I would eat possum. I just, too many, too many times I have walked through a pasture and seen a dead cow, you know, coming out of the woods from hunting at night or late in the evening and be walking home. Shine a light over there at that dead cow and see eyes. And what is that? Some possum crawl out of it? Uh Uh-uh. I'm oh, not eat, yeah. like eating a buzzard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody has to have their limits. But, um, yeah, man, as your yeah. fishing stuff, I mean, I'm at, at my core, I'm a fisherman. And obviously this is predominantly a fishing podcast, but it's also just like the outdoors lifestyle. So it's like, you know, I guess uh, no pun intended, but like the hook that brought me in was the was the fishing videos you have and, and your YouTube channel, which I want to talk about more um, as we go along. But then I start seeing like the whole, uh, you know, body of work on your YouTube channel of all that you do in the outdoors. I'm like, man, this is some interesting stuff because you do a lot of things that I don't do, but I do think I could become very interested in. And a lot of like the craftsmanship, especially some of the plant stuff, both for food wise and for medicinal purposes, which I'd be very interested to know more about. But one of the ones that you do that I think is so cool is the custom knife building. And now I have no experience with this. So I'm like, I'm, I'm coming at this totally as from the perspective of like a, a complete novice and newbie and like totally ignorant to knife building. But I look at, I look at some of that stuff. I'm like, how do you, how do you get into knife building? Are you like forging the blades on like a like in like a blacksmith like iron? Like what are you doing? Are you are you repurposing old blades? Tell me a little bit about that knife building. A lot of it. Um, I I've loved knives since I was a little kid. I've got the scars to prove it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've always been fascinated with knives, but I've always liked making things, and I've always been pretty good with my hands at doing anything that I wanted to do. And I feel like most people, if they want to do something, they'll learn how to do it or at least make a good effort. Now to sit here and say, I'm a master at anything or I'm better than so-and-so. I I feel like at anything I do, I can find tons of people that are way better at it than I am. But the knife making was, I like knives so much and I wanted quality knives that I wanted to make a knife. And I've, I've read about all these people that made knives and they was a man and I have, he's been on my YouTube channel. I've showed some of his knives that I grew up, he he made some knives here. And I remember looking at his knives as a kid and go, man, that is awesome. He made that. And he moved away for a long time. And uh, there was another older gentleman that moved here from Louisiana uh, and was lived down by my uncle's. And he made knives and made some really fine knives. And I bought one of his old forges, but with that, knowing that, hey, people make knives, and I'm like, well, I want to make a knife. I mean, I I just want to try to make one. It can't be that hard. And uh, so I remember getting, we have some circular saw blades. My dad has a welding shop. He builds the metal trusses for barns and buildings, and my house is built out of them. Yeah. And the saw that he cuts that metal tubing with is a pretty strong steel. And so I'm still using it, but that was the first thing I used. And I took a cut-off wheel on a four-inch angle grinder, and I just cut a basic shape out. And 
I went to grinding it, and somebody told me. I asked people, you know, well, I don't. I guess the guy that I knew made knives. I asked him a little bit about it, and he gave me some tips. And he said, "Well, if you grind it, he said you won't really have to do a lot of tempering on that good steel like that." He said, "If you don't get it too hot while you're grinding it." So I learned to take my time and grind it real slow, and and it would hold an edge pretty good. But it's one of those things that experience. You just you you make stuff, and the more you mess up and make mistakes, yeah, the more you learn. You'll learn way more from mistakes than you ever will from success at something because if you're successful at it, you just got lucky. You don't really know what you did. If you do something wrong and it don't work, well, you know, well, I know that don't work. Don't do that again. And that's kind of the way the knife making was for me. I I realized, you know, well, this blade didn't hold up or I broke it doing this or, you know, putting handles on this didn't work or and every time you make one, they get better. So I've probably Mm -hmm. been making knives for around 10 years i would say now on and off and um they just progressively got better now the forging them i have made several knives before i ever got the courage up to try to actually forge one out and uh, i think the first one i forged out i still have was out of a railroad spike and okay (laughs) not really a good quality knife but you know i've learned about beating but i figured out then i wouldn't get steel hot enough i beat 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 on it and barely moved it and so in in learning more just from experience i got better at it but it it all boiled down to i just really liked knives and i wanted to build them and i wanted to build them myself and i want my knives to i don't never want to make knives that look like they come from walmart i that my pottery is the same way if stuff (laughs) looks perfect and it's tie ever cracks perfect now it don't appeal to me because it don't look handmade. It looks like some computer cut it out of something or some yeah. factory stamped it out and produced it. And these guys that hand make flintlocks and hand make it, and it's so perfect and so beautiful and artistic. You know, there's a lot of people that like that. There's a big market for all that. It's not my thing. I don't even like it. And I like the imperfections. So I want my knives to look like you know, some old guy just kind of, you know, had to make do and beat this out of whatever he could find. And I have discovered that some lawnmower blades has pretty good steel. Now, I'm not going to say it's top-notch steel, but yeah. now you can't go to Lowe's and buy lawnmower blades for your lawnmower and wear them out and then make a knife out of it because they, I mean, it's cheap, inferior steel. But now when you go buy quality blades for a commercial lawnmower, and you bought a $100 set of blades and put on it, well, when you pull them off, that blade will just about make a knife and, and make a decent knife. So I've I've made several out of lawnmower blades that I, I've chopped and cut limbs and filleted grunnel and everything else with them and <laughs> I, found that out, was, hey, they're pretty good That's knives. what I was going to ask. I was like, curious. I was like, I wonder if he's like filleting his own fish with his own knife, which is like adds another layer yeah. to like how satisfying that whole process is. And I don't know if there's any science behind this, but I would think that even makes it taste better. <laughs> Maybe oh, it's all yeah. in here, but the, it's like the best best way to eat <laughs> thing is to go to the woods and catch it and kill it and clean it with something you made and mm-hmm. cook it right there on the creek bank. And it's it'll be better. It don't matter what it is yeah. <laughs> or what you cook it with or what season or if you didn't use no seasoning, it's always better right there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you go look in my videos, there's one I call Swamp Grocery 
shopping or something. And I was actually doing some squirrel hunting and in the canoe and I caught a bowfin and I filleted it with the, the buoy knife that I had forged out of a long blade and cooked it over a fire right there on the, <laughs> in the swamp. So well, I'm cool. hoping to get to redo that again this fall. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I totally agree with you when you mentioned like you kind of want the like imperfections to still be in them. Like when you think about like art, like or people who are like have any kind of recognized brands, like like the, I feel like the best artwork or the best artists, like you can actually pick out their work in like a spread of yeah. similar work because it's like it's identifiable. Like it has like your like quote unquote fingerprint on it. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't want it yeah. to be so perfect that it's like like uh uniqueness goes away because there's plenty of cnc machines or whatever out there that are cutting things with with computer precision like you want it to be your thing so see we make pottery for a living here and uh and that's one of the things that i've had people ask me can you make this piece guy you know i want one of these can you make this and you look at it and they've got this perfectly round bowl and it's perfectly shaped and i'm like no, I, I don't make that. Uh, you, yeah, you yeah. know, a lot of people think, well, that's because you can't. I'm like, that looks like it come from Walmart. And, you know, it may come from some well-known potter, but if it's yeah. perfectly smooth and perfectly round, I can go to Walmart and buy that. I, I want something like this yeah. that is unique, that is rough, <laughs> it's not perfectly round. And see, I made that cup. And that's, and, and that's then, the stuff. Now, this is one of my art things that I do. We don't yeah. wholesale this. The stuff that we wholesale, I make the same pieces over and over and over. But this takes like two hours to make one. Yeah. So. But you know what? That's the same thing. I bet whatever liquid you put into that automatically tastes a little bit oh, better. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Today, I don't know if there's science behind golden that. Goldenrod golden rod and cardinal flower tea <laughs> yeah. that I harvested. That's cool. And we're going to, that's another, that's some more stuff for the sake of entertaining my wife. I want to get into some of like the holistic, um, like medicines that you're making and things like that, because she's really into that stuff. And I don't know anything about it, but like when I was showing her, you know, I, I get real excited about all my guests and I'm like, check this guy out. Like, look yeah. at his, look at his awesome stuff. Like, you know, you got these long videos where you're literally just talking about like the gospel, like you're out in the woods and you got the Bible cracked open yeah. and you're giving like, devotionals and and like just just great down to earth like grounded person and then i see you harvesting plants and making medicine or making something to eat and so then i get kind of interested i'm like i wonder what else like 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 i don't know because again i'm gonna be real ignorant about this stuff but i, I see a lot of your videos maybe even more than the fishing stuff you're pulling these plants i've never heard of it could even be things that I've walked past in the woods a million times and I didn't even realize the value that it had. But like, you know, is there something out there? I say, let's say like, I, I've seen a lot of when you say you're you're getting it for medicine and I'm like, okay, but what does it do? It is like, like, give me an example of a plant. Like, let's say I came to you and I said, Justin, I got this uh, stomach ache. I got an upset stomach. Do you, do you have something like in the cabinet in a mason jar that you harvested that can like, uh, I don't know, like alleviate stomach pain or alleviate a headache? One of the things about plant medicine oh, that I think is is different than pharmaceutical medicines is when you start working with 
plants, they start working towards the problem and not the symptom. So when you like what you said, you come and say, I've got these stomach issues. Well, why do you have these stomach issues? Wow, you okay. gotta figure yeah. out what's causing that pain and work on it. So, and with plants, one plant will work on several different things. And and a lot of people with plants, they get this idea of all the, you know, I guess from the Wiccans or whatever, the witchcraft and all that, you know. Mm-hmm, but when you yeah. go to the Bible and read, it talks about that every herb is given for meat. And and the Garden of Eden was a, a place of herbs that they were eating and living from the land in plants. They were not eating the animals because at that point in time, death had not been introduced into the world. Okay. So they weren't yeah. eating the plants. They didn't do that until after they sinned. And God created the plants to keep us healthy, to keep us alive. Therefore, he created, I feel like, powers within those plants. It's my job to unlock that, to learn about it. And a lot of it has already been unlocked and learned and passed down. But what happened is is somewhere but in, after the Great Depression, when we got modern medicine became so widespread or, you know, even possibly up into the 1800s, we lost all of that knowledge of medicinal plants and even yeah. what the Native Americans knew, but even what the Europeans brought over here. And like we brought plantain over here, which is a little plant that grows probably around a corner of everybody's house right beside their driveway or their walking paths or, you know, and it's it's Plantago major and it works awesome for bee stings, ink bites, any kind of sores, cuts, bruises, things on your skin. But it also works like for your gut and inside. If you eat this plant, it starts healing things internally. Mm. It's been used for snake bites to draw out the venom. I think where I read, now if I got bit by a rattlesnake, I'm probably going to immediately take off to the emergency room. Right. I'm not going to try to experiment with a plant. Yeah. But, you know, in those instances where you're somewhere and you have no other option, I, you know, I would be trying to use this plant to see if it would help me. But I think what I read is like with a snake bite, they would apply it topically to the bite to draw the venom out. But then they would eat the plant, too, to be working from the inside as well. Okay. But plants yeah. plants work on the wholeness of the body and, and fix things instead of just trying to put a Band-Aid over a symptom. And that's like, and what really gets me excited about plants is once you've tried something and then you see it work. And yeah. one of those uh, evidence or how you call examples of that is my dad was really sick a couple of years ago. He got pneumonia and uh, he's like, I am, he's not going to tell you if he's hurting or if he's bad, but he had run fever for on and off for two days. And we didn't realize how bad and, and my little boy was young then, so we had thermometers at the house. He said something one night about he was bad sick. So I went down there the next morning uh, to check on him. I was like, well, Daddy, how you feel? And he was, like, I, I, he was sitting in the chair just shaking like this. Uh, I'm yeah. like, well, Mama, what's his temperature? She said, well, we ain't got a thermometer. We hadn't checked it. And I'm like, do what? So I go home, and I get a thermometer, and I get bone set. And I go back down there, and we check his temperature, and it was 102.3. I said, Daddy, here's a plant. I have never, never took this plant. I've never made tea from it. I've never used it. I have read a lot about it. I know for a fact what plant it is. 
I, I can read you all about it in the books that I've got. Do you want to try it? He said, yeah, I'll try anything right now. So we made a tea out of boneset, which is eupatorium profoliatum. Uh, there's a couple of different bonesets, like a late boneset that's a different species, but this is eupatorium profoliatum. And we made a tea from it, and he drank one coffee cup full of tea, and within about 15 minutes, his fever was gone. Now, we oh, loaded wow. him up, yeah. carried him to the emergency room, and uh, when we got there, I told the doctor, you know, what we had done, and he looked at me, you know, like, what? You did what? And it broke <laughs> yeah. it? You know I mean? He couldn't believe. I'm like, you know. <laughs> so when you do something and you see it work for you, mm-hmm. you go, okay, this, you know. And like my little boy, when he was really little, he was fascinated with ants, and he stayed in an ant bed, and they would oh, just no. eat him up. And we would – crush up the fresh plant and rub it on those ant bites and they wouldn't even fester up. They wouldn't even leave a white head on them. So, uh, yeah. you know, when you see this work, then you start having faith in trying other plants that do other things. Especially, and it's a hole, you just... Oh, yeah. Well, especially as an outdoorsman where, like, you're just going to be prone to getting cuts and scrapes and kind of be exposed to, I don't know, maybe intense sunlight or stinging insects. I guess I got to ask because you're from the deep south. You're from swamp country. So I know you're probably combating our arch nemesis, the mosquito. Please tell me you have something. Like if you left home and you forgot the, you know, what do you call it? The the, the bug spray. Is there a plant out there that will keep the... Two plants that I have experienced some relief. Now, nothing is going to compare to the deep that's in your off or your repel mosquito spray or your thermosale. Yeah. But the two plants that I have experienced with is mint and the beauty bush. And now the beauty bush right now is developing the purple fly or berries around each leaf on it. There'll they'll be clusters of berries all the way out the stem. So it's called American beauty bush. Crush that leaf up and rub it on your skin will help some, but now you get more power out of it by infusing it into an oil. So I dried some leaves, crushed them all up, put them in what we call a double boiler. Uh, That's where you set a boiler with a plant and some olive oil inside a pot of water so that it don't get too hot. And it'll sit there for a couple of hours and that plant will infuse into that oil and you can rub that oil on you. Okay. And and that works pretty good. Uh, the mint, to me, seemed to work better. Like, as far as just grabbing a plant, stripping the leaves off and crushing them up in my hand and rubbing them around my clothes, seems to create the best relief of what I have experimented with. Yeah. And I have some, what I call, bush bug dope that I made. And it's mint and beauty bush that I infuse into oil. And it works pretty good. I'm I'm not going to be one of those guys sitting here and say, oh, it's the greatest thing he is. I, I mean, if I've got a can off, that's my go-to. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. hard to beat that <laughs> and then the thermosale. But my problem with a thermosale is I move around so much. It's sitting here in one area. Now, if I'm sitting around a, a cooking or one spot, that's the thing to use. But if me walking up down a creek, man, you've got to hang it around your neck for it to work. Well, then those fumes is going right up your nose. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just can't believe that that's really good for you. <laughs> yeah, because I got to admit, there's been some times where I've been out in the woods and like I just get into them thick, like the mosquitoes are like as thick as the air. And I'm like, I'm looking around wondering like, man, I sure wish I knew what these plants did. Like I need, I like get become desperate, but I'm like, well, I better not just start rubbing leaves on my skin because I'm liable to grab 
something that's got a defense well, mechanism. Well, one of the in things <laughs> with with plants, and I tell everybody this: when you first decide, hey, I want to dabble in plants, whether it's foraging for food or medicinal plants, learn your poisonous plants first. Just mm-hmm. know what poisonous plants is in your area because there's not really that many. And you can learn them and positively identify them pretty quick, especially with Google. And picture this app is a wonderful thing. Okay, uh, It's not 100% correct all the time. I have caught it wrong, but it's a good starting place. And I'll take pictures of stuff with picture this, and, and it'll give me a good place to start. <laughs> and then when I find my plant and I think that I, this is what I think it is, I pull it up on Google and I hit image and I look at all the pictures and make sure it looks like most all of these pictures. If it only looks like one of them, then I'm probably, I'm still skeptical. And then when I decide I'm going to learn about the qualities, I don't never pull that from the internet. I want a book book that has been published by somebody that knows what they're doing because there is way too much garbage information on the internet yes. and and that's with gardening plants everything because anybody can post something on the internet and claim yep. and, and make it look like well this is a professional document and it's just somebody's blog and that's like with gardening all this treated wood don't use treated it'll leach up through your plants I, I there's if you get to really studying about plants and chemicals, you can plant a plant and chemical and it will leach a little of that plant up through that end of the fruit. But they planted some plant, I think tomatoes in arsenic. Penn State did a study on it. And they planted these plants in arsenic, like in a lot of arsenic, and then tested the levels of the fruit. Well, there was some arsenic in the fruit, but it was less than the levels that are naturally in the human body. So the common sense thing is if it's going to hurt you, it's going to hurt that plant. That plant is going to die before it produces something that's going to harm you. So if you if you fool with plants and you can identify your poisonous plants, the next thing I would say is, you know, take something and rub a little bit of it on like a tender spot on your skin somewhere and wait a little bit and see what it does. If you start breaking out from it, then you know you know to leave that alone. Yeah. And the next thing is, is me and you have different bodies. You may be allergic to things that I'm not. So yeah, you know, if true. you see me out here eating stuff, using stuff, well, you still need to be careful. Even if you have a positive ID on it, because you could be allergic to that. I mean, for crying out loud, there's people allergic to peanuts, and I eat them all the time. Yeah. I've got a guy in my neighborhood. If he eats them, they'll kill him. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask is, like, you know, there's, like, there's an app for everything, but I kind of agree. Like, I think if it came down to real knowledge on the plants that are out there, I, I would I would still think that like your old fashioned like field guide or like field manual or like an actual not yeah. I'm holding up my phone, a book that you can even put in your pocket yeah. would probably be better than I don't know, man. When you start especially looking at things on the Google, you just you don't know what you're gonna get. But it's a it's a good point. I do like and, that and app. all of those images are compiled from people that may have knew what they're doing or may not have. Yep. And now, now Google will can recognize. I guess with the technology we have now, it can really recognize that plan, and it's getting better because so many yeah. people are taking pictures of this, and it's calculating and and putting all the same mm-hmm. things together. And so it's it's a good thing, 
But when I want to know what that plant will actually fix, because I have even through books, I have found some counteractions in between stuff because every time if I'm in a thrift store, and that's one of our fun things, when we go out of town, we go to thrift stores. We just and I always go to the books and if I see my discount books, well then I'm what it is. And I have, you know, I've got a pretty I've probably got about ten or fifteen different medicinal plant books. And you find some controversy in some of them. So you know that some things are are, you know, you're not sure about. And then I have a couple of websites that I can pull up and look at medicinal properties and you see some controversy between the two. Yeah. So that's why I say, you know, when you when you pull an information with the internet, you need to be careful of where it's coming from. Where who who put this on the internet? Did they know what they were doing? Or were they yeah. just trying to get clicked? <laughs> right. See, with a book, you eliminate all of that. This guy, he he put some work into making this book. It's yep. mostly accurate knowledge. So Yeah, I completely agree. So it's like, you know, you you've obviously you have like the sort of medicinal or functional purpose plants for things like, you know, r- remedies of some sort. And then you also on the other end of that, you have the plants that are for for edibles, like edible reasons. Now that is one that I've like, you know, I've done some gardening and it's mostly just like plants that I thought were just aesthetically pleasing, you know, like I, I like the way they look. And then I try to dabble in like growing food and man i just i got into that for a little while i was like i really admire people who can like who can like in it's because it's such an investment you know it's like an investment of your time your energy your attention and it's like you put all this information or all this effort and you finally get like a you get one tomato and then it's gone like that you just just eat it It takes like takes like one minute to eat it and it takes you know significantly longer far cheaper to just go buy what you're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I would like people here, if I was going to grow something like peas, it's a lot cheaper to go. Now you can buy like in bulk these fresh peas that some farmer has grew a bunch of them and they've already shelled them and they like $30 a big old bag. That is by far the cheapest route because me growing them, I've got fertilizer, I've got fuel in a tractor, I've got my time. I've got, I mean, there's so much work involved in it that it, it is not cheaper to grow your own food. Right. Nobody is growing it because it's cheaper. Uh, or I don't think so. They're, I do it because it's knowledge that I want to be better because here's the problem. If if tomorrow the grocery stores are closed and they and you can't go back, there's a lot of people that think, well, I can grow my own stuff that's going to quickly discover they can't grow it as well as they thought they could. Yeah. Because every year I've been gardening avidly for several years. And like this year I struggled with some of my tomatoes at different things. And, but I'm always experimenting with certain things. So, I mean, even if I know I can grow a tomato like this, well, I will, can I grow this over here and make it do better? Or can I try this and see how this works? Or do these wicking tubs work? Or is a raised bed better? Or, you know, what about this no-till? So I'm always experimenting. But you do it to keep that knowledge alive and know how to do it so that if something did happen to where we do have to grow our own food, that I feel like I can be successful at it yeah. and not – it's one of those things you can't watch somebody garden and then say, well, you know, I can do it then. I didn't see what they do. I know how to do it. That's like primitive fire. You can watch somebody make a bow drill fire. 
200 times and you're not going to go out there the first time and make have success i just there's no way right <laughs> it, well, it, you have to practice those skills to learn it yeah i think uh, you know it's one of those things that serves more of a purpose than simply filling your belly i mean like i had a grandfather that was like into that kind of stuff and it's like you know when you're a kid a naive kid you think that oh we're just growing some apples oh we're just growing we're just gonna make a salad today and then over time and over the course of time at least if you're the type of person that's present enough in the moment to like take in what you're watching i you kind of realize okay this is this is about more than just getting something to eat so it's like i think it's almost like uh, and again, it's not a skill that I have, but it's like, you know, when you watch people who are good at um, homesteading, whether it's craftsmanship or or planting their own plant that eventually one day becomes something that they can eat. It's like, I think there's as much of a, a mental, uh, like a mental health that you get out of it as like a nutritional health. So I can totally see that. And like I said earlier, like your YouTube channel, I found myself like going down the rabbit hole of watching you explaining these the process of fermenting uh, or uh, making apple cider vinegar out of old apples that had dropped. I'm like, I will probably never do this, but it's like when the passion is genuine, like you can sit and watch it and be entertained. Like I, I'm like 15 minutes in, I'm like, what am I, you know, whoa, whoa. Like what am, what am I doing here? What am I watching? But it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that it's about more than just, you know, the health. It's about freedom. Yeah. It's about knowing that if, and I'm not a really a big conspiracy theorist or nothing, mm-hmm. uh, but even say you're one of these people that do believe the government's out to to try to get rid of half of us or or whatever, and or either say another country takes over it and shuts the power grid down or or whatever happens. It's about knowing that you know what they can't starve me out because yeah. I can take care of myself. And and that's that's part of that that sense of freedom is probably what most people are attracted to, knowing that I can fend for myself, I can see what's going into my food, I can see where it's coming from. And then for me, the spirit of the outdoors is my my consciousness of my connection to the world around me yeah. and to the creator that created it. And yep. a lot of people they want to like well, medicinal plants especially. Let's harvest this plant and let's trade a lock of hair for it or let's sing it a song or let's give thanks to the plant. And, and, you know, they understand that this plant has power. It does. I admit that plant has power, but that power is given to it by God. So when I pick this plant, I have no qualms about grabbing it and jerking it up by the root. But I turn around and say, if I'm going to give thanks for it, I thank God for this plant and the knowledge he gave me to know what to do with it. And that's a connection that very few people are bridging the gap on. Yeah. It's either a holistic, let's worship the plants and the earth, or let's just don't fool with it at all. There's nobody that's gone back to the connection of God and plant and me. And that's kind yeah. of what I'm trying to build. No, I totally agree. And that's a great way to look at it. Um, I even think buried in there, like let's say like a fisherman. Again, I'm tying it into like the fishing thing. I think even people that are going out and catching and releasing, somewhere like somewhere buried in their reason for going to fishing, like it might be a small part, but I I do think it's a foundational part. I think every man and, and woman, it's not man woman thing. There's a it's 
it could be a subconscious thing or it could be an intentional thing. But I think we all like want to speak to that side of us, like that primitive side to us. That's like you want to simulate the ability, like even if you're throwing it back, you want to simulate I have the ability to provide for food. And that's I think that's for some people, that's at least that's at least part of why they're going out there to to chase game to have an experience with an animal so i totally get that it's just obviously that ambition or that spirit is much louder in others or clearer in others than than some but uh yours i i want to talk more about your youtube channel because like we're going into that it's like you have mixed this older way of living with a more modern way with technology obviously you're putting things onto youtube yeah and it's like it's like it's this very for me it's this very fascinating, like, bridging of two worlds. Like, you've taken technology and you've taken, like, this old school style of way of living and, like, put them together. I'm like, this is so great. There's not enough of that out there. But I, I kind of wonder, like, a lot of the knowledge you have seems like the – it seems like tribal knowledge. It seems like generational knowledge. But you are you have taken it upon yourself to share it with total strangers. So I'd love to talk about the YouTube channel, like – you know, what was the motivation behind developing it? What is the channel? I guess we need My, to establish that. Well, Spirit of the Outdoors is is basically what I just said. It's it's the spirit of God in the creation and my recognition that he created all of this for me. The spirit of the outdoors is me sitting here and being able to recognize that I'm in the middle of a masterpiece. Yeah. It, the, even the little Little things like days that I'm out filming plants, I can zoom in to, to little bitty ferns and moss growing with a ink crawling by. And it's in that frame blowed up big screen TV. It's a beautiful picture. And then you can zoom out of the whole landscape across of the trees and the clouds behind it. And, and it's, you know, there's beauty in everything. But then when you start realizing how powerful each individual piece of this is as far as the the ability for this animal to feed me, clothe me, this plant to heal me, feed me, uh, you know, create shade for me. I mean, there's a lot. When you start unlocking every individual thing, the spirit of the outdoors is my, my ability to take from what's around me and use it to my benefit. Yeah, but not abuse it either. And I, I believe in conservation. I believe in using what I need. Uh, and that's like trapping a lot of people that are attracted to my channel for the 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 respect of the wildlife and respect of the fish and respect of the plants and stuff. Struggle with my trapping, but I, I live in an area that that if like my garden. Right now, we've got stuff just raiding everything. Birds is just stealing all the, the berries, mm-hmm. berry that comes up. Uh, they're eating all the corn that's left on the stalks. The coons are coming up and eat. You have to keep that in check some way or another. And yeah, either you've got to kill it or you've got to trap it and haul it way off. Well, a lot of people don't realize it. You can load a raccoon up. You can haul that raccoon two or three miles. And put him out, and he'll just about beat you back home. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, so you've either got to dispose of it or something. And then when you're raising chickens, I have no intentions to try to annihilate or wipe out any species of, of animal. 
Uh, if they could all get along and live in peace, I could enjoy sitting here watching foxes play in the front yard. But unfortunately, it don't work that way. And mm-hmm. you have to understand that you have a responsibility to protect some species. And like another thing I would say is like with the rabbits, you have to know kind of how many rabbits are around. And sometimes that requires taking a light at night and walking around and just seeing how many rabbits you see, you know. And yeah. if there's not very many, well, you know, I need to thin out the coyotes and it's killing them all. Then if you see just rabbits everywhere and they're eating the garden up, well, you probably don't need to trap coyotes out here. So having that knowledge, not just how to trap, but when to trap and if I should be trapped or not, a lot of that is part of the YouTube channel. But asking why I started it probably has to do with the trapping. When I first started trapping, my I was asking some of the I said, how do they catch a mink? Because a mink is one of the things. We don't really have a lot of them, so I don't really try to trap them here because they there's not that many of them anymore. There used to be. But my grandpa was probably one of the best mink trappers they were. And Daddy would tell me, he said, well, he used to do something with a paper bag. So I remember him getting two or three paper bags and putting them in his pocket and his boots, and he'd wade down them creeks. And he said, if there was a mink in there, he'd catch him. I said, well, what'd he do with the bag? I don't know. I don't remember. And then when I started building the smokehouse, it happened again. I was like, well, how did, how did y'all preserve meat here? Because there's books on how to preserve meat. But people don't realize with the humidity that we have here in Mississippi and that you have in Florida, it's different. It's not the same way that they do in northern Tennessee. It's a huge difference to here. Yeah. So I've struggled to to preserve meat and run a smokehouse. And I was like, well, how did y'all do it when you were a kid? And I don't remember. I remember us having a smokehouse. I remember keeping a fire going, but I don't remember exactly what they did. And me remembering that this knowledge is lost. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'd give anything to be able to sit down now and watch my grandpa as he waded up and down a creek bank and yeah. did what he did. I wouldn't have been interested in it when he was alive. Now I would go back and watch it. And I, I said, you know what? I want my grandkids to be able to go back and watch the things I did because I realized I live a little differently than even most of my friends right around here. Yeah. Everybody here is an outdoorsman, grew up hunting, fishing, all that, but not quite to the extent that I do it. I don't know anybody that knows how to take a deer skin and tan it. I don't know anybody that personally that knows medicinal plants, that knows how to dig things up and use them. So I started searching for that knowledge, and my thing was is I needed to share it. And then another thing was with the gardening. When I, I was fortunate enough to have my dad still an avid gardener, and he grows enough on his own that I wouldn't have to garden at all. I could just go pick out of his garden, and we would all have plenty to eat. But mm-hmm. I have to grow my own stuff, and then when I mess up, I could say, Daddy, what, what did I do wrong here? How you do it? Why is yours so much better than mine? And, you know, well, I thought this fertilizer wasn't good for this or that, and I'm watching – the physical evidence when I plant like this and he plants right there all on the same 40 acres of land. Well, uh, there's a difference. His is doing better than mine for what reason? So I'm able to learn, you know, from their successes. And then I remember my nephew, when they moved down to South Mississippi, he decided he wanted to start growing a garden. Well, my brother don't garden very much. He gardens a little, 
and uh but they didn't garden much as a kid because he worked a lot and yeah. uh my nephew was asking me and my my dad you know well how do you grow this and how you grow that and i'm like well i tell you what i said you watch my youtube channel i'll put how to do this on there so i was doing some of my gardening so that he could watch it and i realized you know there's a lot of people that are getting interested in garden that that you have now either all organic gardening or nothing else there's nobody just doing the old timers way of gardening you yeah. know where we anything you get online and find now is all about organic no-till all this stuff and and if that works i'm okay with it but i have really found that the no-till stuff is really a lot more work than it's worth it's more work than they portray it to be so uh, it's it's about sharing that knowledge and just trying to dig up what i can find but the next thing with the youtube channel is it pushes me to get out and do things I find uh, yeah. it pushing me to learn new stuff because you want to make interesting content and you want to come up with stuff that you hadn't already done four times and doing that it pushes me. Well, you know, I want to learn how to do this so I can film it. So like me building a flintlock rifle on camera and document it, I had never built a gun in my life, but I had yeah. built <laughs> knives and I'm like, I want to build a gun. I, I want to build a gun. And I found out, hey, people build black powder rifles. You can buy these kits. So instead of me going and buying one of these in a package where you just kind of assemble it, I went to a guy here in Mississippi that that hand pretty much makes all the parts and said, hey, I want a really rough kit, and I want to build it myself, and I'm going to document it on YouTube. And I've never built a rifle before and built a rifle that I've killed several squirrels with. And I remember the first squirrel I killed with it, I, that was one of the most exciting things. Yeah. <laughs> so my next big milestone is I want to kill a deer with a bow that I made. I've oh, made yeah. two or three bows that function, but I have not made one yet that, that I'm really happy with. That I'm like, I mean, because obviously I'm not Clay Hayes or Ryan Gill. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got a lot to learn. that I want to accomplish. I think there's a lot of satisfaction in knowing I made this bow and then harvested game with it. I think that's huge. 100%. Well, I, I've been a big like fan of it already, and clearly other people have as well. I appreciate that you're like staying practical and you're like, like looking to be authentic and then not getting too caught up and being over the top, trying to be like, I don't know, viral moments and entertainment but uh you clearly i mean you well you've got like i don't know between 10 and twelve thousand followers or something already right i think if i i should have written we, that down we broke fourteen thousand last okay. night so you're even, I you're even last higher. night it went over fourteen thousand yeah. yeah so you, you but got... mine has not grown as fast because i'm not this is my niche like you you're mostly fishing Mm-hmm. The algorithm will pick up, this is a fishing deal. We go, okay, yeah, we're yeah. going to put it all, all the fishing people are there. Well, mine is from fishing to medicinal plants to spiritual talks and preaching to gardening. to So the algorithm has like, uh, uh, this, no, no, this, not no, that don't, uh, this. And so it's all over the place. And it's took it a while to start growing. But now, uh in the last six months, I've watched it start really, and I figure it'll. I figure by Christmas we'll be over twenty thousand. Nice, should be. Yeah. So well, it's it's taking on all. A lot of times, though, ma'am, I don't know. 
I, I might be wrong on this. I'm just kind of assuming like the slower growth channels like that, where like it's, it's, it seems like the people that you have, even though it's smaller, is probably a little bit more like they're, they're returning to watch. Like they're in, they're, yeah. they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, and I get very little negativity. Yeah. I, you know, occasionally, like on a video that does go viral, that's like getting video, you're going to find a few people that come in and just want to be negative just because they're them kind of people. Um, but most of it, I have had very little negativity, even with my spiritual stuff, because I talked to a guy that I went and met with some of my subscribers and went hunting with them. And one of the guys that wanted to meet me, he said, I started a YouTube channel years ago. And he said, I was going to do some of my preaching on there. And they, he got so much negativity that he just didn't, didn't want to deal with it and stop. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you know, God, I have been fortunate that I have not really had to deal with that. You you find one alone. And but now I have a rule. I, I'm firm in what I believe, but I'm not going to argue with you about beliefs and what the Bible means about stuff. If you believe one thing, then believe it. I, I, it's not going to bother me. If you're curious about what I believe or you're looking for knowledge, I'll help you as much as I can with what I know, which spiritually is probably very limited. But. I'm not going to argue with people over, no, this is like this, and they believe in this. That's that's a wasted conversation. A hundred percent, especially on the internet, where there's like, as soon as you start to lose the argument or lose, you know, I don't, I don't know, you can just find a quick exit. It's just, that's no place to try to conduct a debate. It's that just... and, and politics. I try to stay completely oh, yeah, away yeah. from politics. <laughs> yeah, it's no good. It's... Those people that are using politics to make a fortune and make viral video, I mean, those they some guys that's got very successful channels just because of politics. But mm-hmm. politics I find just stresses me out. I, I would I vote, but I I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think I'd rather just not vote, not care and, and ride the ride because I feel yeah. like at times that's really all you can do yeah. anyway. That's, I, you know, but it's, it's progressively becoming more and more of a circus. So I, I kind of I, I share that sentiment. But, man, I want to, um, you know, kind of kind of close out by driving people to like your your stuff, like your your Instagram. I don't know if you have like a Facebook page, but certainly your YouTube because it's yeah, it's awesome stuff between the fishing, the hunting, the craftsmanship, the uh, the gardening. It's like uh, the whole like you said, spirit of the outdoors, like the whole picture. I feel like you you broadcast that well. And uh, like I said, man, I, I'm speaking on behalf of somebody that I, I don't I, – I can't say I don't have interest, but I don't have experience. And I may have not otherwise been interested, but I have found myself watching a lot of your stuff that I – I don't even know why, but it's like you present it in a really awesome way. So um, where can people find you on Instagram, one, one on YouTube? Thing, uh, I have Instagram. The Instagram kind of took off from a, a video I did last year right after Christmas where I give the chickens a pep talk. I went <laughs> out there and, and asked them why I wouldn't get no eggs, and it got like millions of views. <laughs> and I I put that on my Instagram kind of just a joke. I really wouldn't push in my Instagram. It was just something extra that I did because I enjoyed taking pictures. I mean, I like photography and videography, obviously. That's why I started the channel. And I guess one of the things about my channel I like the best is I enjoy editing the videos. That's one of my RT. I, I enjoy doing that. But the Instagram is uh, Peden Spirit of the Outdoors. 
And then there is a uh, my personal Facebook page that I very rarely get on anymore because of all the I just stay out of people's personal stuff for the most part. And yeah. I stay on my Spirit of the Outdoors Facebook page. So, and the logo is the same on all of it. And uh, then obviously the YouTube channel Spirit of the Outdoors. And uh, I the YouTube channel is my main thing. Now yeah. the the Instagram caught up with it last year after the viral video of the the chicken talk, and it really <laughs> passed my YouTube channel. But now my YouTube has come back and went by it. So mm-hmm. I still do some of reels, and, and I struggle with the reels because I really don't like them or the shorts. But they yeah. are the best way to to find fans and and people because people come there seeing that and then searching for your stuff and find it on there so but my thing with the reels of the shorts is it's like a rabbit hole once you go through and watch two or three you realize 30 minutes later i've watched 100 and, and i've uh, what am i watching and yeah. half of it you don't even care about yeah. <laughs> so I, but anyway i i do some and i try to put some educational stuff on there but i also try to keep it funny keep it entertaining and one of the things you'll find about my youtube channel is it's real. What you see is real life. Mm-hmm. It's not a staged production. I just simply turn a camera on and do what I do. I, if I think, hey, this would be interesting, I literally just turn the camera on and do it, and then I try to edit it well enough to make it look presentable. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to get to where I do a little better film in these days and get better audio in it and a lot better from where I started, but I've still got a long way to go. Yeah. Well, I, I love it. And I'm going to throw like those names and links up on the screen and things like that and try to drive people to it. I, I agree. You've, you kind of have everything. You've got photos, you have short clips, you have longer videos. So you kind of have a little bit of yeah. something for everybody that's interested even a little bit in, in the outdoors. So, man, Justin, I appreciate it. And I make time. a lot of content. Yeah, Most you do. Oh, one very video consistent. a week, we put out three four five videos a week sometimes depending on how well the internet works yeah (laughs) well i'm glad i worked long enough for this podcast but justin man i I appreciate your time uh the dog looks hungry the dog looks like it wants some attention come here roscoe (laughs) yeah oh we got a cameo he's he's famous roscoe Roscoe is well known on YouTube. He's got as many fans, him and Brody, as I do. <laughs> <laughs> you got to love a good dog. But, Justin, man, I, I appreciate your time, and, and I hope a few people go check your stuff out. It is awesome. and uh, But we'll be in touch, well, thank man. Thank you. So, all right, Enjoy man. it, man. I have looked forward to this podcast. Yeah, I've, I have, too. I, I'm glad I got you on. I appreciate you, man. Have a good one. All right, you too. We'll do it again sometime. Just let me know when. Oh yeah, anytime. Thank you for listening to Boundless Pursuit. Tune in each week as we bring stories and insight from uniquely talented anglers and outdoorsmen. And if you enjoyed this show, I want to hear from you. Be sure to leave a five-star review as this is going to drive the growth and exposure of this show. And if you have feedback or guest suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com. For all other collections of media and contact information, please visit www.boundless-pursuit.com.